The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning, everybody. How are we? Another beautiful day here in Mobile, Alabama, huh? Beautiful, beautiful. So, those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Ryan Perizine, one of the pastors here on staff here. I am filling in for Kyle Bashirs this morning. He is out of town. And so I don't typically teach on Sunday mornings, but when I do, I fill in for Kyle. So here I am. Um, maybe this is your first time. I want to say welcome to you. Tell you a little bit about what we do here at Mars Hill. We have a high view of God's word, and so therefore we want to be faithful teachers of God's word. My prayer this week is that you, the church, walk away with a clearer understanding of what God's word says. So that way we can hear it, that we can be comforted by God's word, we can be convicted by God's word, and God's word can begin to transform our lives. And so that's what we do. And so in doing that, we teach through different books of the Bible. And right now, church, we are in what? The book of James. Very good. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18 is where we're going to be camped out today. And while you're turning there, maybe it would be helpful for us to kind of refresh what we've been learning thus far in this study. Who is he writing to? Who is James writing to in the book of James? Well, if we look to the first verse, we see that James is writing to the church who's been dispersed or scattered because of a strong persecution that arose during the time of the early church. And so right off the bat, we notice that the church would consist during this time of men and women who were plagued with heartache and who were plagued with suffering. They were refugees, so to speak, in another country. They were forced to live in a place that was not their home. And so this is a people that have been afflicted with, with poverty and oppression. They were scorned and they were blasphemed. The wealthy took advantage of them, oppressing them day and night. The rich would drag them into courts, as we will see in chapter 2. Life was not easy for the church at this time. And so there were people suffering in a foreign land, plagued with heartache, stripped from the comfortable life they once knew. The church during this time, life for them was difficult. And I think if we're honest, we would notice that not much has changed between then and now. Trials are just as prevalent within the life of the church now as they were when this letter was written then. I think if we, had, if we came back tonight and had an open mic night and we passed the microphone around and just shared trials that we've gone through within the past six months, I think we would be here all night. We would be here until Wednesday. We would, this has just been a difficult season for the church here at Mars Hill. But I think God's timing in all of that has been perfect because we just finished studying the book of Ruth. And in this, we saw week after week that God uses trials for the good of Naomi and Ruth and for ultimately God's glory. And then now we're in the book of James and we're seeing the church suffering just like us who are in the same boat that we are in. And so I think we learned or we are learning that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what generation you grew up in. It doesn't matter what town you grew up in. It doesn't matter what continent you lived on. Trials are going to come. You will encounter trials during your life. No amount of money can save you from these trials. No amount of faith can save you from these trials. Trials are a part of life. They will indeed come. And I think this is why James starts his letter off the way he does and saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So although the church is constantly plagued with trials, the church is not without hope. The life 
the death, the resurrection of Jesus anchors the church in hope. It provides us, the good news of Jesus Christ provides us, extends to us hope. And we learned that during our study of Romans. We learned that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this means that any trial that we encounter in this life, it's incapable of separating us from our source of hope. It's incapable of separating us from Jesus. And if it's incapable of separating us from our source of hope, then therefore it's incapable of separating us from our source of joy. And so when we meet trials of various kinds, we can count it all joy when we meet them. Why? Because we still have Jesus, our source of hope and our source of joy. Nothing can take that away. And as James says, we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And we let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we see here that trials aren't something that we just push through, that we just grind through. No, trials are something that God uses as a means of sanctifying us. The hope of the gospel tells us that our suffering will result in good. And so James is telling the church to find joy in the midst of trials because trials are a tool that God uses to make his people more like him. Perfect and complete, lacking and nothing. And we saw this last week, the one who remains steadfast under trial will be blessed, is blessed, and that God promises a crown to those who remain steadfast, who stand through this test. So again, trials are a good tool, a tool that God uses to make his people more like him and that we may become steadfast, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And so now with any trial that we come in contact with, we will learn today that one will most likely experience temptations as well. So you think about this, if you lose your job, you could then be faced with the temptation to find or gain money illegally. So I'm not gonna file taxes this year or I'm gonna do this. Trials come with temptations of some sort. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks and you're faced with the temptation to be unfaithful to your wife or your husband. Or you may just be faced with the temptation to be in despair or you may be faced with the temptation to doubt God's goodness in the face of trials. Temptations oftentimes ride on the coattail of the testing of our faith. And because of this, James makes a careful distinction in our passage today between testing and temptations. So just because God allows trials in our lives and just because God at times tests us, that's not an excuse for us to blame God for the temptations that we experience during these trials. There's a difference between the two. God is not to blame for any temptations that we experience. And so this is the topic that we're gonna be wrestling through today, specifically the topic of temptations. And so let's go ahead and read this passage, verses 13 through 18. It says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James, for the past 12 verses, has been saying what? He's been saying that the testing of our faith will ultimately one day result in good. But here in verse 13, James makes a careful distinction. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So the word James uses here for tempted is interesting enough, the same word that he uses for testing in verse 12. But James obviously makes a a distinct difference between the two here. And what is that distinction? What's the difference between testing and temptations? or testing and tempting. The major difference we see is the, what they lead to or the end goal of the two. Testing of our faith, as we've seen in the previous verses, are difficult moments in our life that will ultimately result in good. Temptations, however, as we will learn today, are something that will lead to death. Testing leads to godliness. Tempting leads to godlessness. Testing is a tool that God uses to make us more like Jesus. Temptations are a tool used to lure us away from God and faithfulness to Jesus. Temptations are an enticement towards evil. So because of this difference, we see James make a bold command. He says, when you are tempted, do not blame your temptation on God. And why? He gives us two reasons. One, because God cannot be tempted with evil. And two, God tempts no one. So think about this for a moment. Let's think about this logically. If the goal of temptation is to lure us away from God and faithfulness of Jesus, to lead us away to lead us away from godliness, to lead us to godlessness, then it's impossible for God to be tempted because God cannot be lured away from himself. He can't be lured away from godliness. God cannot be unfaithful to himself nor would he ever lead anyone else to be unfaithful to himself. It's illogical to think this. Because God is good, because he is pure, because he is righteous, because he's unchangeable in nature, he cannot be tempted to be unfaithful to himself. It's impossible for God to be enticed into unfaithfulness. The Bible makes this clear that God hates sin. So why would he be tempted into the very thing that he hates? God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, as James says. God is not crafty and divisive. He's not seeking to lure us into sin. He's not trying to to make us fall. Rather, he's steadfast, and he's reliable, and he's here for our good. Therefore, he is not the one to blame for our temptations. Maybe an analogy would be helpful in, in teasing this out. How many of you know who Mark Powell is? Okay. So you probably know two things about Mark Powell if you know him. One, you know that he's probably one of the most godly men you will ever meet. Just one of the greatest servants, one of the most kind guys. He's, this, is, this is Mark Powell for you. He, in playing Dirty Santa, will steal your gift, and then at the end, he'll give that to you back. Like, that's, that's a perfect summary of Mark Powell. But number two, if you know Mark, you know that he is vertically challenged, meaning he is short as you see by the picture here. And so Mark Powell had a birthday a few weeks ago. And in his birthday, he got a bag of Dove dark chocolates. You know those little dark chocolates? 
that he got a huge bag of those. Well, after his birthday, I come into my office one day and there's dove dark chocolates just dispersed all throughout my office. I think I counted 16 of them hidden in different areas in my office. So what would you logically come to the conclusion? That Mark Powell did this. Why? Because it's his chocolate. Well, upon further investigation, I began to realize this couldn't be Mark Powell. Why? Because of the location of the chocolates hidden. They were on top of my bookshelf, on top of my corkboard, on top of the picture frames on my wall, on top of the door frame. Areas that Mark could not reach. He's incapable of reaching these areas. And so let no one blame Mark for this shameful act. Why? Because he cannot reach these hiding spots. Because Mark's height, he is incapable of hiding these chocolates in my office. It turned out to be Brad and Justin and a few other other guys. So the point remains here in the same way James is saying, let no one say that God is the one tempting them. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Because of God's righteousness, he's incapable of sinning. He cannot be unfaithful to himself. And so listen, this is not a limitation on God. No, this, and that should lead us to doubting God. We shouldn't go to the conclusion, well, if God can't sin, if he can't be tempted with sin, then he's not God. No, this should lead us to say, okay, we serve a God who is perfect and righteous and unchangeable in nature. We, this should lead us to worship him and trust him all the more. And so this is a beautiful truth of God. He is pure, he is reliable, he is constant, he's righteous, and he's good. There's nothing evil that concerns God. There's no evil that can lure and entice the father into sinning. The traps and the snares of the enemy cannot thwart God and his holiness. In the end, God cannot be tempted with evil and he is without temptation. The God we serve is good and the way that he interacts with his children is good. There's no temptation that can ever take step into his presence. Now, the beautiful paradox of the gospel is that Jesus, the son of God, came and emptied himself, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, and became a servant. And he, as Hebrew 4 tells us, was tempted in every way that we were, yet remained without sin. So we see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness with food, security, and power, yet he remained pure, not defiled by an ounce of sin. God is perfectly sinless. The Father is incapable of being tempted. And we must rest assured that he will never tempt us. So God is not to blame for our temptation, and he's certainly not to blame for our sin. But as we continue to read, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. James is using fishing language here. Do we have any fishermen, fisherwomen in here? None. Not a one, okay? So this, this analogy may be foreign to us. But think about what you do. Maybe just imagine, since none of you are fishermen, just imagine the concept of fishing for a moment. You, what do you do? How do you try to catch a fish? You try to catch a fish by luring them and enticing them. You try to catch a fish by lying and deceiving those poor little guys into biting your hook. I've concluded that after this study, the... the sport of fishing is a deceitful 
evil practice that we should all avoid. It's such, it's, it's hilarious. I will probably still go fishing with my father-in-law this summer during snapper fusion. But think about the logistics of fishing for a moment here, okay? You're trying to trick the fish into thinking that he's getting a good thing when he's not. In actuality, you're tempting the fish with something that will ultimately lead to its death. You try to disguise the hook with something enticing. You take that, that poor, juicy, squirmy little worm and you stick it on the hook and it's squirming around. And what you do is you, what happens next? You take that poor little innocent worm and you throw it out into the water where you think it's gonna be and you try to lure them in. And so then here this worm is sitting perfectly in the middle of the water and the fish looks at that and it becomes enticed. It's, it's craving prompts it to swim over there. And so this fish looking at the worm is like, wow, that's a delicious looking worm. It looks so good. I'm actually really hungry. My stomach's growling. Oh my gosh, I can smell it. That worm smells horrible, but yet it smells so good. And look how juicy it is. It's dancing on something. I, I'm gonna take a bite. And so the next thing you know, the fish's inner craving leads to its demise. It bites the worm. The hook catches and it's yanked to shore where death resides. And this is exactly how temptation works with us. We are lured and enticed by our own desire. We, so to speak, look at the worm and it begins to appeal to our desires and we begin to go towards it. In these moments, it's in these moments that our vision becomes foggy and we forget that death is on the other side of temptation. As Thomas Brooks says, he says, Satan's first device is to draw the soul into sin, is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the, from, follow the committing of sin. So temptation is a monster that comes in the form of the desirable. And with that understanding, I think we can safely answer the question, where does the blame fall here? Are we off the hook, so to speak, in terms of accountability of our sin because of something else has lured us in, something else has enticed us? Can we shift the blame off of ourselves? Can we blame our circumstances? Can we blame our upbringing for the sin that we've committed? Can we blame Satan for the sin that we've committed? And James says, no, look what he says. He holds up the mirror and says that we are to blame for this sin. He says that it's our own evil desire that's at fault. Each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. James doesn't allow us to point the finger to anyone else or anything else, no matter how bad we want to. Enticement to sin comes from our own sinful desires. Our sinful desires expose to us the uncomfortable reality that the blame falls on us. And because of this uncomfortable reality, we are blame shifters by nature. We don't want to take accountability for the sins we've committed. And we see this perfectly displayed for us in Genesis 3. The, specifically, right after committing sin, the first sin that we see in Genesis 3, God comes to Adam, he says, what have you done? And Adam says this, he tells God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So Adam's like, he's well aware he's committed this sin, but no, 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 it's not me. It's the woman that you've given me. 
So we see, we see uh, blame being shifted off of himself. And so God turns to Eve and says, what have you done? And Eve then responds, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So no, 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 God, it's not my fault. It's the serpent. He talked me into it. And so again, we see blame being shifted off of ourselves. And God then gives no opportunity for Satan to speak or respond. Why? Because Satan would have then blamed God. If you shift blame off of yourself long enough, the blame will eventually land on God. Well, God, you created me like this. I was born this way. You placed me in the garden. You created the fruit. You created the serpent. If you hadn't have done these things, I wouldn't have sinned. Therefore, you, God, are the one to blame. You are the one at fault. And James takes, James takes this chain of logic and throws it in the garbage. He says, no, 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 no. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so with that being said, I feel like we need to make a clarity or clarify something really quick before we go any further. Although temptation leads to sin and we're to blame for this, temptation in and of itself is not sin. We see Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus is familiar with temptation. Hebrews 4.12, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, he knows temptation, but Jesus does not know sin. Temptation in and of itself is not sinful. Can you be tempted to sin and yet remain pure? Absolutely, that's the prayer, that's the goal, that's what we hope for, is in the face of temptation to flee it, to put it to death and not give into it. But in the same breath, we must not forget that the goal of temptation is death. May we not miss the weight of this analogy. We must not take this lightly. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So notice the, the imagery that James is using here. Each of us are lured and enticed by our own desires. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. James is using a metaphor of conception here. And so think about this analogy for a second. If a husband and wife avoid each other at all cost, conception isn't going to take place. But if a husband and wife become united with one another, then before you know it, the wife will probably begin to get sick in the morning time. She'll start to, to eat the ice cream and you'll be going to CVS at 11 o'clock at night. And the next thing you know, you're going to be having a, a two, almost a two-year-old and a five-month-old. Once conception takes place, you cannot reverse the course of conception. When you give in to temptation, when you give in to your desire, sin is birth. That which is wicked, evil, and disgusting has lured you in and has given birth to a monster within you. This monster will then lead to your demise. It will lead to death. And giving into temptation, you begin to become engulfed in something that will choke out all things good. So sin isn't just a, oops, my bad, uh, uh oh, I, I won't do this again. No, sin will literally suck the life out of you, rob you of all joy. It will leave you empty. It's this conception that leads to death. So church, we must know this. And when temptation knocks on the door, we must run, we must flee, avoid this conception. 
when your desires are screaming at you, telling you to give in, may we resist the bait. Desires are good, they're God-given, but our desires are tainted with sin. And we must not forget this. Therefore, trusting, following, relying on our desires is dangerous. It's when we aimlessly trust our desires that we blindly become lured and enticed in the sin. As Christians, we take the blame and confess that our desires are faulty, that they are tainted with sin. But we also, in the same breath, confess that God's desires are not. We confess and know that God is incapable of being tempted. Therefore, we trust and become submissive to his word. We become obedient to God's word and not our own desires because it's in God that we find all good things. As James says in verses 16 through 18, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So because God is good, he cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. And as we see here, because God is good, we know that every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. Temptation to sin, temptation leads to sin, and sin leads to death, and that's not from God. But any and all good gifts that we experience in life come from God, the Father of lights. But how do we know this is true? How do we know that God is this generous giver of good gifts? How do we know that he is going to use our trials and testings for good? How do we know that he is reliable and dependent? How do we know that God cannot be tempted with evil? How do we know these things? We know these things because of Jesus. We know that God is a giver of good gifts because of Jesus Christ. There is no greater gift that one could give than the gift of salvation that God has graciously extended to us in Christ. We know that God can use our trials and testings for good because of Jesus. If God can take hopeless, sinful people like us and redeem us through the blood of the cross, then he can take seemingly hopeless situations and redeem them. We know that God is reliable because of the empty tomb. The empty tomb removes all doubt from our hearts from the hearts of believers. We know that there is hope for us because we serve a God who is alive. We know that the Father cannot be tempted with evil because of the great lengths that he went through in defeating sin and death through the death of Jesus. Church, Jesus is the perfect gift. He is the good gift. He is the one who is tempted in every way that we have been tempted, yet remains sinless. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins that we have committed. Because of Jesus, peace with God has been extended to us through his bloodshed. God has been generous to us in extending to us Jesus. There is no greater display of generosity than to completely empty yourself and become a servant, laying your life down for those in need. And this is exactly what Christ has done for us. And so church, may we never lose sight of the cross. Because of the cross, we know that God is a generous giver. Our sin drove a wedge between us and God as we see in Genesis 3 and as we see all throughout Scripture. But God went to great lengths to extend to us redemption. He offers forgiveness to those who have deliberately sinned against Him. God is gracious. And this gracious God that we serve generously offers us an escape from temptation. And so this is a beautiful truth. As we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So church, listen, when temptations come, God's not sitting far away from us with his arms crossed, disgusted by us. No, God, the generous giver of all gifts has provided for you in a way of escape that you may be able to endure such temptations. So in the face of temptations, may we pray that God will protect us. May we pray that God would help us recognize temptations in our lives so that we may be able to avoid it. May we be a church who hates sin and may we be a church that avoids it. May we be a church who stores up God's word in our hearts so that way we may be able to live pure lives. As Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And so may we be a church when in the face of temptation, we avoid it, we don't let this conception take place, and we remain faithful by the gracious gift that God has extended to us, the way of escape. And so may we be obedient to this. Because of God's gifts, the punishment for our sins have been paid for if our faith is in Christ. And because of God's good gifts, a way of escape has been provided for us. So may we, in the face of temptation, avoid giving into sin. Let me pray for us. We will worship, and then we will we'll head out. Father, we love you, and God, we thank you. God, we praise you, and we find joy even in the midst of trials. We know and we trust that you will work those trials together for our good, but God, may we never pin the blame for our sin on you. God, may we take the blame. May we confess our sins, and may we be a church who hates these sin, and may we be a church that's being sanctified, that we will become more and more like you through our trials and through our avoidance of sin. And so, God, I pray for any in here who have just become very accustomed to temptation, very accustomed to giving in to temptations. It's just become a way of their life. They feel like they're stuck in this mud, stuck in this sin. God, we know that you are gracious and that you, you extend a hand to us to pull us out of such sin. And so, God, I pray for those who feel engulfed in this and feel trapped. And I pray that you will be gracious in giving us the gift of escape. And so, God, we praise you. We thank you. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.